0: Talks should he him. have gone to the FBI when he got that email? Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? If I don't it's think. It's coming from I'll Russia, tell you, what, you do. I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work way. The FBI out. director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. That was President Trump speaking to ABC News's George Stephanopoulos this week in a remarkable interview, asserting that he sees nothing wrong in taking opposition research from a hostile foreign power, exactly what his son and top campaign aides were prepared to do three short years ago when they were offered dirt on Hillary Clinton straight from Kremlin files. Even for a president prone to say all sorts of wild and crazy things, the president's remarks were striking. Was he inviting Vladimir Putin to once again lend his campaign a hand and help him defeat his 2020 Democratic rival? And taking issue with his own FBI director, Christopher Wray? The president's allies on Capitol Hill brushed it all aside as they always do. But after what seemed like a few good days for the White House, in which House Democrats seemed to get little traction in their stumbling attempts to publicize the Mueller report, Trump's comments were a reminder of much of what seemed so troubling about the 2016 campaign in the first place. We'll discuss the fallout from Trump's interview with Tommy Vitor, former spokesperson for Barack Obama's National Security Council, and with the hosts of Words Matter podcast on this episode of Skullduggery.
1: Because people have got to know whether or not their president's are crook.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. and I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So Trump finds a way <laughs> to thrust himself right in the middle of the news once again, which is striking to me because I thought, the White House was actually gaining some ground for a few days there. These hearings on Capitol Hill, John Dean testifying about the Saturday Night Massacre, as though that was a way To call attention to the Mueller report seemed like a pretty stupid idea to me, but that's what the House Judiciary Committee Democrats were reduced to. They had no witnesses they could put on. And so, you know, if anything, I thought. You know, they lost some steam and then Trump sort of puts all the troubling questions about the 2016 campaign right back on the table by making these comments to Stephanopoulos.
1: It's unbelievable. Look, after all the investigations, all the controversy, all the scandals, Trump saying a million times, no collusion. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's effectively saying, kind of quoting his uh, his son Donald Trump Jr. You know, if it's if it's what you say it is, uh, I love it. Right. Right. Um, and you know, it, it's like a it's like a tick or something that every time things maybe start to turn up, um, he steps into it again. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. have to wonder. You know, maybe it is intentional. Maybe, you know, he's so addicted to the attention and to the action on Twitter, uh, and and it just stems from his deep narcissism. He
0: needs to do that. And and also, look, if your basic approach to life is you give no ground on anything, why not say it? You know, that was, you know, the Trump Tower meeting, which was— Three years ago this month, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort meeting with this delegation of Russians after Don Jr. gets the email talking about uh, derogatory information about Hillary Clinton straight from Kremlin files. That was, you know, one of the iconic moments of the Trump-Russia story. And by Trump saying this, he's basically saying his people did nothing wrong. His son did nothing wrong. And I'd do it again. I so- didn't do
1: it, but if I had done it. Okay. It would have been absolutely fine, been absolutely um, and you know what's striking fine. to me. And, and I'll
0: do it. And, and,
1: I'll, and I'll do it again, if I, I have another again. opportunity. I'll do it again. Yeah. Um, and what's what's really striking to me about this is is this news. I mean, these comments were made. This interview was aired roughly at the same time that the New York Times uh, broke this story about how the Justice Department is in in its investigation of the origins of the Russia probe are now going to be interviewing cia officers uh, about all of this and so trump on the one hand is saying there's nothing wrong with it on the other hand i'm going to use the justice department to investigate the intelligence community professionals who traditionally we have uh, you know basically right. accepted uh, well, their findings. Well,
0: now let's you know let's let's slow down a little on that. Um, certainly, both you and I have done plenty of reporting about all the things the intelligence professionals have gotten wrong and done wrong over the years, from you know the the, the claims of WMD in Iraq to enhanced interrogation techniques all done by these intelligence professionals who we now put on a pedestal. So I'm not sure. Don't you you think
1: that if this was a bogus investigation that Mueller would have found that out? He didn't seem to have any problem with the FBI investigation and all of this. In fact, he ultimately writes a report that says, All of these things happened, not that there was collusion, but there was certainly reason to investigate and that all Americans ought to take this seriously. Well, look, there is a... uh... I mean, Trump Trump is questioning, and the premise of this investigation is Mm. questioning the conclusion of the intelligence community that Putin was involved in this, in interfering with our election to help Trump. That is what the special counsel found in his report.
0: Right. And that is one of the issues... That John Durham, the uh, U.S. Attorney who, um, Barr has appointed to do this investigation is looking at. Um, let's remember, Durham has a history of investigating the CIA on behalf of attorneys general. I know he was, it well. He was the guy who Eric Holder picked to investigate the CIA in their enhanced interrogation techniques and handling of detainees. By the way, he's never really found any wrongdoing. He's never, he, well, he produced a also report that remains secret. Yeah, yeah, that remains secret because it was all covered by grand jury, so we've never seen it. Well, he certainly didn't didn't bring any criminal charges. He didn't bring any criminal charges. So I think he's got a track record of perhaps being fair to the intelligence community. I do think that the uh, scope is broader than you just uh, represented of the Durham investigation. I think they're looking at the beginning of the investigation. When did it begin? What was the predicate for it beginning, what role did CIA leadership play in driving things? And apparently the specific
1: case officer that they want to talk to is a counterintelligence officer within the CIA who works closely with the FBI.
0: Right. I mean look the discouraging thing about this is is we both remember the term investigation of the CIA on uh, enhanced interrogation took what three four years I mean we were waiting forever for that. Um, We'll see uh, whether we have to wait as long on this one. A couple of other things we should get to really quickly. Um, Let's see the Office of Special Counsel which has nothing to do with Office of Special <laughs> Counsel Which has nothing to do with Robert Mueller. Has recommended that Kellyanne Conway be fired for violating the Hatch Act by making uh, political comments in her numerous TV interviews you know i don't know how much traction this will have i mean the white house well, is already saying a, they have a, no plans to um uh, to yeah first take of all so the Hatch Act
1: requires that civil servants and
0: i guess political appointees
1: not to uh, take mm-hmm. part in it, partisan activity uh, mm-hmm. as part of their official duties it is a kind of toothless office all they can do is recommend um, when it comes to political appointees, this is the they, strongest
0: they, recommendation I've ever well, heard. Well, yeah. they've never done this before. They've
1: never done this before, and in fact, the guy who who's in charge of that office, who by the way is a Trump appointee, so uh, that. You know, maybe reassuring in, in some ways. He said, yeah, it's it's unprecedented for us to do anything like this. On the other hand, it's also unprecedented to see the kind of behavior that we saw from uh, Kellyanne Conway. But one of the things that she did that got, I think, probably the most attention is probably the least serious, in my view, although it was stupid, was to go on television and uh, recommend that uh, everybody buy Ivanka Trump's, uh, you know, whatever her line of clothing is. Uh, but she also, and this is more- And that was
0: deemed to be political- that
1: was deemed to be a violation. Although I don't see how that's political. So, in any event, they yeah. she also did um, go up there on television and uh, say supportive things of uh, GOP candidates uh, right before elections. That's a little more problematic. And of course, the White House is now saying that that the Office of Special Counsel is is weaponizing the Hatch Act and and that they are being political and violating. Kellyanne Conway's uh, First Amendment rights. But right.
0: just as we were sitting down, did you uh, tell me you saw a story that Sarah Sanders is leaving the I White did. House? I did. I did. It just, it, it, we used to say, it just came over the
1: wires. These days, it's Trump tweeted. So apparently that's how <laughs> so we the, all the, know. He the loves Western to... Union
0: man <laughs> just came in with a telegram. Now that's your day. Right? That was that was
1: when <laughs> yeah. you were working for State's News Service. That's how he yeah. used to file your stories. All right. <laughs> but Trump tweeted this, which yeah. is he always likes to scoop us. Right. And uh, we, we don't know know exactly what the story behind the story is, but uh, we've got our reporters working on it.
0: Right. All right. Well, lots of stuff to talk about, including these uh, the attack on these um, these oil tankers that the uh, State Department and Trump administration are now blaming on Iran, something we can talk about with uh, Tommy Vitor from the uh, Obama national security staff. So let's get to it. <music> All right. Now from uh, L.A. Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, Hollywood. We have uh, Tommy Vitor, Hello, uh, guys. former spokesperson for the Obama National Security Council. And now, I don't know, what are you in the movie business now out there? Uh,
3: yeah, big, big podcast. We go where the big bucks are here. It's all uh, <laughs> blue apron and uh, underwear ads. <laughs>
1: Yeah. All right. Well. Are, you just, are you slipping in an ad right there by doing that? Is that that's called native advertising. Yeah,
3: right. Look, if this were a ZipRecruiter ad, which it's not. I'm just kidding. Oh, he did it again. We want a piece of that. You'll we want it. like 20%. percent red share. Talk. Yes. No problem. All right.
0: We bill ourselves as serious podcasters here. <laughs> so uh, enough of this frivolity. All right. Uh, Mr. Vitor. You didn't say what
1: his podcasts are. You got to mention. Oh, I'm podcasts. sorry.
0: Tommy is the co-host of Podcast. Pod Save America and the host of Pod Save the World.
3: Did Thank I get you. that right? You did. All you right, did. Good. Pod Save America all is right. all the political blah, blah, blah. Pod Save the World is all foreign policy with my old friend Ben Rhodes, who I'm sure you guys also worked with uh, a lot.
0: Yeah, we did. We been did. A, and been a guest on Skullduggery. Excellent. All right. Look, lots to talk about. We had these attack on the uh, two oil tankers mm-hmm. uh, in the Gulf of Oman and Secretary Pompeo has said that intelligence reviewed by American officials show Iran was responsible for the attacks. Do you believe them?
3: I don't know. I mean I, I have no basis to make a decision right and I guess that's kind of the point when you when you see all the breaking news alerts, uncritically citing his comments. I mean, I I think a lot about what a Gulf of Oman resolution might look like. It's something we should (laughs) probably avoid. We don't want that little nod to history. But look, can I see a credible scenario where the Iranians lashed out in response to what they feel like is an unfair pressure campaign from this White House? Absolutely. But I do think this is as delicate and precarious a place as there exists in the world. And we should see some evidence before we are willing to accept uncritically Mike Pompeo's word here, especially given this White House yeah. has the way they've demonstrated that they don't care about lying. They'll lie with impunity all the time.
1: I mean, don't, don't you think it's I thought it was kind of odd that these two tankers, at least according to the story I read in The New York Times, we're headed toward Japan. I think mm-hmm. one of them is owned by Japan. And this was all happening when uh, Shinzo Abe was meeting with uh, Tehran's leadership. Is that weird? Seems I, a little suspicious. I
3: thought it was weird. I, like, Why would the Iranians go after the Japanese when they're trying to broker some sort of peaceful agreement? I, it, look, actions like that, they don't always make sense. They're not always logical, but it does seem a little fishy, right?
0: I guess the uh, question for you and other Obama people on this would be: Look, you um, made the Iranian nuclear agreement a hallmark of your foreign policy mm-hmm. in the in the second term, and the criticism has been: Okay, that's great, but look at Iranian behavior throughout the region, and it's been pretty hostile and pretty aggressive, and this would be another manifestation of it. And it does raise questions about whether you guys were too soft on Mm -hmm.
3: the Iranians. Well, I mean, look, the Trump administration pulled out of the deal and they've been increasing sanctions on the Iranian regime, pretty overtly talking about regime change and trying to crush their economy. So I don't think it's it's logical or reasonable to uh, expect the Iranians to stay in a deal and keep up their end of the agreement if we pulled out. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm okay with what they have done or that it's in any way acceptable, but I think that's sort of an illogical position. I also think that the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, was designed to carve out and specifically focus on Iran's nuclear program because it was seen as an existential threat to the United States, to Israel, that it could create an arms race in the region, that could bring in other countries and get them to develop nuclear weapons programs. It was not an agreement that was designed to deal with Iran's funding of Hezbollah or uh, their arming of the Houthi rebels in Yemen and other places. So, like, I always feel like some of these criticisms miss the point. No one in the Obama White House thought the Iranians were good actors. That's why we spent years and years and years building up the militaries of some of their adversaries in the region as as part of a broader check against them. But the nuclear weapons program was seen as the paramount priority.
0: Right. I guess the counter to that would be, look, you and I'm sure many others will try to portray if it is established that this is an Iranian attack on the oil tankers, it's going to be presented as a Iranian response to our belligerent attitude towards their regime and our withdrawal from the agreement. But there was plenty of belligerent actions by the Iranians over the years that predated this, that went back to your period of time. I remember when the Obama administration publicly accused the Iranians of trying to assassinate the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. That was a wild story. Yeah, pretty aggressive act uh, in and of itself. So, you know, I don't know. This is going to be a tough one to evaluate because it is true that Pompeo has not presented any Evidence, any evidence that we can see to evaluate these remarks. On the other hand, you know, do we give the Iranians the benefit of the doubt?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say you don't usually negotiate major nuclear deals like that with with good guys. I mean, there was no no one in the, in the Obama White House thought the IRG, IRGC or the Kuds Force or Qasem Soleimani were a bunch of good guys trying their best, right? These were individuals and organizations within Iran that had sponsored terrorism that threatened Israel that the all sorts of bad things but you know we need to seek out and go after diplomatic tools to resolve these disputes and when we unilaterally pull out of the Iran nuclear deal and we leave our european allies holding the bag the Iranians stay in it for years despite our departure, despite increased US sanctions, and we continue to try to crush their economy. And the sanctions, like, I, I think a logical person should expect a response from Iran in that scenario. I'm in no way saying it's fair or reasonable or acceptable in any way. So, what I think the administration should do is they should take any evidence they have to some sort of international body like the UN or the UN Security Council and present it and, and try to get a multilateral response. But, like, How quaint. (laughs) Right, but this this talk that we're seeing that the 2001 AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force that was passed after 9-11 when we were hit by al-Qaeda, somehow authorizes a military response to Iran is crazy, and we need to be very clear about that.
1: Let me just ask you one last question on Iran, then we'll move on. I'm just curious what you think, how this unfolds in terms of how the Iranians are going to react going forward. The Europeans are doing everything everything they can to make sure that they stay in the agreement. Uh, They've already kind of pulled out a little bit, but they're also sophisticated about American politics. Their foreign minister is educated in the United States. They're looking ahead to 2020. What do you expect them to do? Do you think they'll
3: stay in and see what happens in the election? Gosh, I don't know. It's a great question. But I, I I think knowing the answer to that question requires you to know who is currently in charge <laughs> calling the shots here yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and to really be able to understand if they're rational actors and they're thinking about this in a way that understands the intricacies of u.s politics i agree with you that they're sophisticated and smart but the number of smart sophisticated countries that just fundamentally don't understand U.S. politics or the fact that Congress is independent or that Barack Obama couldn't just call up his friend at The New York Times and tell them to stop publishing bad stories about, say, Pakistan was remarkable to me. So the gulf between the, these two countries in terms of miscommunication potential is is enormous.
1: All right. Let's move quickly from uh, high-minded, high-stakes foreign policy issues to uh, crass politics inside the Trump administration. As we record this, we just learned that Sarah Sanders has quit. She, of course, was the press secretary for the Trump White House and a very close advisor to Trump. What is Sarah Sanders' legacy, Tommy Vitor?
3: um, Her legacy is having worked for a a president who had no regard for the truth, who lied with impunity, and she was more than willing to torture credibility to follow his lead. She also killed the White House press briefing. I mean, I guess Sean Spicer started that process. But, you know, when you're listeners, if you look at the at the White House press briefings where the podium is and the press secretary sits, there's an office of people behind that door. It's called Lower Press, where a bunch of young schmucks like myself sat. And my job all day, every day, was to try to figure out what issues we're going to be asked at a press briefing and, and get the relevant information and provide an answer that Jay Carney or Robert Gibbs or Josh Earnest could offer to the press. And she just killed those briefings. I don't think they've had a White House press briefing in like 90 94
1: days. days, 94 days so, and, and counting. So
3: what does she do all day?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, let mess? us
0: let us not forget, although it's, you know, was what? Two months ago that the Mueller report came out, Mm -hmm. and uh, among the many revelations was the fact that she acknowledged that when she said at the White House press briefing that that she'd heard from countless FBI agents applauding the firing of James Comey, she was just making it up.
3: Yes, she was just making it up. It, and Did you ever do that? No, because I knew that it, <laughs> if, if you guys found out that I had lied to you on purpose. You'd be gone. I'd be gone. I'd be fired. <laughs> I would have no credibility. And there's this right wing uh, world, this ecosystem where credibility no longer matters, where she can leave that office and go on a MAGA speaking tour and write some garbage MAGA book and get a Fox News contract and be just fine. And it, it's just it's it's bizarre. Should Trump be impeached? I think so. I mean, look, if if I were a member of Congress, I think the argument that would convince me to proceed with impeachment is that you want to be on the right side of history. And I think it's clear that he obstructed justice. I mean, there's 10 instances detailed in that report. Putting on my like political hack hat, I am not convinced that the politics of impeachment are good for Democrats. In fact, I feel like I can make a better argument to myself that the politics are actually bad, but um, sometimes you just have to do the right thing.
1: But why isn't the imperative why why not be kind of utilitarian about this and say the the imperative is. To make sure that he is not does not stay in office, and that if if there's a backlash against impeachment, if the Democrats lose the House, mm-hmm. if uh, it ends up benefiting Trump and he's reelected, then wouldn't that have been the wrong calculation?
3: Absolutely. I mean, look, there, there's a scenario where you proceed with impeachment. It's unpopular to begin with. It ends more unpopular. Voters are frustrated that you spend all this time talking about what they view to be Russia focused Mueller stuff and not the things they care about, and you lose a chance to prosecute a case on, say, the economy or on corruption or all these other things. I mean So the Dan Pfeiffer, who is, you know, my uh, impeachment Svengali, would argue that the key is to open the aperture of what an impeachment proceeding would be about to include the emoluments clause, to include a whole bunch of other things, other instances of corruption and make it a bigger case. I do think there's no scenario under which Trump is removed by the Senate and that we're going to have to defeat him electorally. And I I worry about anything that takes away from prosecuting that uh, that campaign electorally. But I just you know, you also just can't let this White House give you the Heisman on every single hearing request you ever make or every document request. You know, I mean, they're just exerting executive privilege over Trump's tax returns from the 2000s. Yeah, we're in a we're in an absurd place.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, role reversal we seem to be in on so many fronts in American politics and debates right now. You served a president, Barack Obama, who came into office having rejected the U.S., intelligence community's assessment of the threat from Iraq opposing the Iraq war, Mm -hmm. who sharply criticized the U.S. intelligence community for its enhanced interrogation techniques, i.e. torture of Mm -hmm. detainees, who uh, from the get-go tried to reset relations with Russia by improving our relations and um, forging agreements with the Russians. And here we are so many years Years later, in which uh, Democrats are defending the intelligence community, (laughs) suggesting it's uh, absolutely horrible to have any kind of Justice Department investigation into how they handled matters. And uh, first and foremost, I could keep pounding the table about the threat from Russia. Um, (laughs) Do you see any irony there in the role reversal of Democrats during the Trump era?
3: Man, well, when you put it that way, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: okay. Yeah. It's all I'm about sure. the
3: framing. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, you're good at this. Yeah. You're yeah. Good, you're I'd, like good to hear, I'd
0: like to hear this discussion on Pod Save America, by the way. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I'd love to have
3: it. I mean, well, should we just take yeah. it piece by piece? Please do. Well, so the, this DOJ, the fact that DOJ is interviewing CIA agents uh, and analysts about their assessment of whether or not Russia intervened does seem like it could have a potentially chilling effect on their belief that they should just go where the facts take them and that they won't get in trouble for issuing judgments that Trump doesn't like. I mean, inaccurate CIA assessments can lead to disastrous consequences. And you're right that my boss was very vocal about that. But I don't want you—I don't think we want to criminalize analysis— because it's wrong, that feels like something that Kim Jong-un might do, right? Like take out some, you should fire them if you think they're wrong. But DOJ makes you feel like you're going to get thrown in jail for making a mistake. Nor do I think that, that Attorney General William Barr's motivations are pure. I mean, it seems to me like they're making a play to try to get to people like John Brennan and Jim Clapper because Trump wants to punish his enemies. And the way we know he wants to punish his enemies is because he tweets about it all the time.
0: Right. No, I mean, I I totally agree with that, but that you know, begs the question of whether there are legitimate questions about how the CIA and the FBI handled matters during the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not a defense of Donald Trump or of how his campaign handled its many contacts with the
3: Russians. That's fair, though. But I I do believe that Jeff Sessions, who's no lefty liberal, looked into this. I believe the Department of Justice Inspector General Reviewed the way some of these matters were handled, and no one. We're
0: still waiting.
3: We're still waiting for the IG's report. Sure, but I I just haven't seen it yet. I've never heard anyone say that something was inappropriately done. I mean, certainly there were a, a whole lot of leaks early on about. What was briefed to Trump or not? And if I were in the White House at the time working for the Trump administration, I would be mighty pissed off about that. But I don't know that that's necessarily a DOJ matter, although if it was a classified leak, then I guess it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, there were certainly there were classified leaks. The the mere fact that we mm-hmm. learned that Michael Flynn had had this conversation with the Russian ambassador in which there were intercepts that contradicted his public explanation for it. That was clearly a classified leak. Yeah. But look, I mean, you know, there are if you listened to Fox News, which I'm sure you do, All you'll exactly. hear every night questions about the FISA warrant on Carter Page and whether it relied excessively on the Steele dossier commissioned by the Clinton campaign. Is it not legitimate to raise questions about the use of a OPPO political research document in a FISA court proceeding to get a surveillance warrant on an American citizen?
3: I think it's a mistake to slap the label oppo on a bunch of research and then somehow assert that the facts within are are somehow different or tainted. I mean, Carter Page was such a bumbling idiot that the FBI had been on his tail for a long time, right? I mean, there are court documents that revealed that actual Kremlin. agent. He was
0: approached by Russian intelligence and they made fun of him earlier. for
3: being a moron. And I believe he was right. warned. So certainly it would, it would like here's the scenario I'm trying to imagine if the FBI thought that a potential Russian agent had infiltrated the Trump campaign and did not do anything. That to me seems like a dereliction of duty. Separate from that, I think we can have a broader conversation about FISA warrants, how often they are accepted, how easy or not easy it is to wiretap American citizens. But um, I don't think that's the debate Trump is trying to have. I think he's trying to absolve himself ex post facto.
0: Um, You're probably right. uh, But I just the only point I'm trying to make and Danny and I were just talking about this Mm -hmm. before we started, which is the idea that the FISA court is infallible nope. is uh, carries no more weight than the idea that the intelligence community is infa- infallible mm-hmm. i mean the very first snowden leak was the fisa order for verizon for the ma- metadata mass collection of Americans' phone calls under Section 215 uh, of the Patriot Act, something the American public knew nothing about. And when it and the Congress learned about what the FISA court had done at the urging of the FBI, it changed the law. Mm -hmm. It decided that was unacceptable.
3: Yeah, I think, look, you're right. You're right. That that's a very good point. I think. All we, right, now let's let's just stop the discussion right there.
0: <laughs> let's end it. We've got our headline. Vitor tells me I'm right. No, uh, you are. But look,
3: yeah. I, I think yeah. we 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 create problems for ourselves whenever we talk about institutions or individuals as infallible. FISA is not always right. The CIA is not always right. God knows the FBI is not always right. Right? Like we shouldn't. We shouldn't lionize Jim Comey or Bob Mueller individuals. Like, these are people in hard jobs doing the best they can, and they're screwing up all the time. What I think is worrisome in the current scenario is that it seems like William Barr is potentially trying to criminalize people doing their best in very hard jobs to serve Trump's narrow interests versus take a broader step back to review some of these processes.
1: Okay, Tommy, so uh, the other thing that happened just— hours before we recorded this podcast, is uh, Donald Trump gave an interview to George Stephanopoulos on ABC and uh, said that uh, he would pretty much unhesitatingly take uh, dirt from a rival foreign power. Your reaction?
3: That's insane. I mean, it's, it's illegal, right? I, I think it's pretty clear is it illegal? It is unlawful for a person to solicit, accept, or receive something, something of value. value from a foreign national. So it's a
0: it's a campaign finance, finance violation. violation yeah. which Trump has already done. So <laughs> yeah, right.
3: what's one more? Yeah, right. <laughs> Chalk another up. But I mean, look. It, but for your listeners, I mean, if I were working on a campaign and I were to go to an Oppo research firm and try to contract out some work on a rival candidate, it would cost me. In the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, if I'm just getting that from a foreign country, that is an illegal campaign finance, That is an illegal contribution. And it's a campaign finance violation. I don't think there is any dispute uh, on the law there. And I think actually Mueller Mueller touched on the fact that there are reasonable arguments that what they tried the Russians tried to give to Don Jr. was a thing of value. So, I mean, it's remarkable that Trump is brazenly saying he would break the law. I also think it's just it's wildly unethical and un-American. So, um,
1: so yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So so what does it reflect in, in Trump? I mean, and is it unpatriotic? Is it that he's so transactional and only cares about winning that he'll do whatever it takes? What, where do you think this springs from in his, uh, in his character?
3: Boundless narcissism. I think he only cares about himself and winning and could care less about the country. I mean... Uh, You know, unfortunately, we've we've been in a place where we've seen instances where lawmakers have put the interests of foreign leaders ahead of being willing to work with the opposition party in the United States. But this is next level stuff. It's un-American. It's unethical. It's it's a green light for China and Russia to try again and and try to hack the next uh, nominees, emails or what have you.
1: Would you make that make that part of uh, impeachment proceedings? I mean, is that that comment? Is it is it is it
3: is in an article <laughs> of impeachment? I don't know. Good question. I mean, it depends on how many articles you have. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I just want to touch on one thing you mentioned earlier, which is the idea that Obama went in with a Russia reset. And, and now Democrats are constantly talking about the threat from Russia. Like, I sort of think all of it can be true at once. Like the Russia reset was important because after the Iraq war, and a whole bunch of back and forth between Bush and Putin, we were in a very bad place with the Russian government. Dmitry Medvedev comes in, and Obama and Medvedev were able to get a lot of things done, including uh, a new version of the START treaty, sanctions on Iran, sanctions on North Korea, a whole bunch of work of the UN Security Council. Then Putin comes back, Things get terrible again. Yeah,
0: but, right? but, 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 you know, there were many, including on the National Security Council under Obama, who were telling you, look, uh, Putin is pulling the strings. Oh, Medvedev yeah. is a fig- figurehead. He'll do whatever Putin wants him to do. And when Putin decides it's time for him to go, he's going to go. And that's exactly what happened.
3: Well, th- I, I, I'm not disputing that, but it doesn't change the fact that we got some stuff done. I also think that Putin saw what happened in Libya and got pissed off and decided he needed to take the reins back from Dmitry but reasonable people can probably disagree but but I would just say fast forward to the 2016 election i mean there was a broad based systematic effort to interfere in our elections most of it was on social media and in sort of a, a sort of traditional propaganda campaign but you know i guess what i'm trying to say is we shouldn't build up the russians to be this all powerful Faux. I mean if if a couple people have two step verification on their email, the course of history is very different. You know? <laughs> so like
0: anyway. <laughs> Tommy, hello, let me Hello, just... John Podesta. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. let, let me, Poor guy. Let,
1: let me, before we let you go, sure. let, let me just ask you about something that we used to talk to you about a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, and give you a hard time. You, as a representative of uh, the Obama White House, a hard time on which is counterterrorism policies, uh, drone strikes, um, civilians being killed in those drone strikes, Guantanamo, which uh, the president, President Obama promised to shut down, I think, mm-hmm. his first day in office uh, and was not successful in doing that. We don't talk about those issues anymore, almost at all. And by, yeah. by when I say we, uh, we in the media, it's not a part of the, uh, the public policy conversation. Isakoff and I actually just did a segment with a lawyer representing a Gitmo prisoner who's being held indefinitely and has never been charged with a, with, with a crime. Why do you think that those uh, those issues have just gone away, and uh, what should we do about it? I mean, we, we've we done a little bit on it, but no one talks about them at all.
3: Yeah, it really is. It, it's 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 another mini tragedy in the ongoing saga of the Trump show. I mean, I think part of it is that he distracts us with a new thing every single day, so it's hard to get to substance. I think another piece of this is that on an issue like drones, for example, activists tend to lobby administrations that are going to listen to them, that are going to be sympathetic, because they know that someone like Barack Obama actually does care about the issue of civilian casualties, and he wants to prioritize diplomacy and close Gitmo. If you tried to get a meeting with John Bolton about some of these issues, you would get get the door slammed in your face, because Trump doesn't care. Mm -hmm. He talked about carpet bombing (laughs) cities and killing terrorist families, right? So he's like... Pretty affirmatively in the kill them all, we'll sort it out later camp. I wish oh. we'd had more of a conversation about counterterrorism policies and drones earlier on. I think the second term Obama foreign policy was more indicative of his personal views than the first term. And, you know, if we gotten there a little quicker, it probably would have better.
0: Well, um, you just gave us a great idea, which is to ask for an interview with Bolton about drone strikes in Guantanamo. <laughs> we'll see how far we get. I love that. Uh Tommy uh, Veter, thanks
3: for uh, joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. It's a great show. I'm a, I'm a big fan. And uh, RIP Michael Wolf, <laughs> after your <the> interview. <laughs> All,
1: All right, right so we're take big care. fans
3: of your shows, too. Uh, take take care. Have a good one.
0: We are now joined by two rival podcasters, the uh, co-hosts of Words Matter, Joe Lockhart, former White House press secretary under Bill Clinton, and Katie Barlow, a uh, D.C. lawyer who writes the Circuit Breaker blog. Katie and Joe, welcome to Skullduggery.
4: Thanks. We're happy to to be here. Great to be here. So, you know, we
0: pay a lot of attention to the impeachment debate in Congress and try to sort of assess where it stands week by week. We had a lot going on this week, as we do every week. Uh, Two hearings, uh, one House Judiciary Committee with John Dean and two MSNBC commentators. Um, Right. A lot that we can say about that. And then uh, a hearing before House Intel. And then Donald Trump's extraordinary interview with George Stephanopoulos, if you were sort of judging where the needle is on impeachment at the moment, would you say it moved forward this week or backwards or did it stay the same? Katie?
4: So as the lawyer in the group, I like to remind myself and everyone that this is our political outlet for uh, investigating and and for uh, bringing justice to the president and not the legal route. It's the Mm -hmm. sole authority of the Mm -hmm. House and that the trial will be the sole authority of the Senate. So I defer to my uh, impeachment expert and political expert here. Wait, on the very first Um, question. I think the needle hasn't substantively moved. I think the leader has been clear on what she thinks and she's putting her foot down. And I don't think we've moved anywhere other than the media just having more to talk about in terms of impeachment. But, you know, other than more headlines, no, I don't think the the needle's moved at all. Well, Joe,
1: Joe, what do you think? I mean, just a pure political calculation, since this is a a political process impeachment at the end of the day.
2: I guess no one's ever said on advice of my political counsel, I invoke my (laughs) First Amendment rights to not answer that. I think the hearing did nothing uh, to move the needle. In fact, if anything, it might have moved it back a little bit. I feel for uh, Chairman Adler, he's under tremendous pressure to do something publicly, but everything they're doing privately just takes time. And, you know, I think and we can talk more about how the how important the judiciary is going to be in this, and they always are, in um, moving the, the needle for real. I do think the interview with Stephanopoulos might have nudged it forward a little bit. Because it all of a sudden makes the first volume of Mueller's report much more relevant. we would kind of gotten to the point where everyone had said, first volume, collusion, we'll give him a pass on that. We'll just focus on obstruction. But when he sits there and talks about, it, I'll do it again, all of a sudden that's relevant again. And I think Pelosi is, above all else, a great head counter. And the needle, you know, ultimately will be judged by how many members start to flip, and say they're for uh, impeachment and who those members are. Uh,
1: and, and, and you you really think it, it only matters at this point about what happens in the House. Obviously, you know, the House impeaches. That's the equivalent of an indictment. But don't you have to think forward to what would happen in the Senate? And you would need two-thirds of the Senate, which means, what, I don't know what the number is exactly. But, it's
2: 13 or 14 Republicans uh, voting yeah. Uh, for. Uh, yeah, listen, there, and that's what's missing in a lot of the debate here. Which is there? Are, you know, again, most Americans think if you impeach the president, he, he has, has to leave office. office. He does not the next day, and you know, they, they, which is uh, somewhat stunning because not 20 years ago we went through this process. <laughs> and guess what? You know, I didn't lose my job yeah. on December 19th, <laughs> I was say, 1998. As you well yeah,
0: remember, yeah, I, I might have liked <laughs> to have lost my job that day, but I didn't.
2: Right. I, I had to go to work December 20th, 1998. <laughs> there is a lot of uh, public education, and there is a dynamic in which. I actually think it could help the president to take advantage of a show trial that's choreographed by Mitch McConnell. Uh, the rules are set by Mitch McConnell and no one else. So ultimately, this is a long answer, and I apologize. But ultimately, what the heads that Nancy Pelosi is looking at are these forty freshman Democrats who got elected not by running against Donald Trump, not by running against you know saying you know Bob Mueller is, is the answer. They got elected because in somewhat conservative districts, they said, we're going to protect pre-existing conditions on health care, and we're going to have a tax code that's fair and all of those things. And she wants to do everything she can to protect them, because doing something that makes you feel really good, holding the president accountable, embarrassing him daily, having it die in the Senate, and then losing the House in 2020... Is is the disaster scenario.
0: So, look, this is um, an issue you are well qualified to speak about, which is, you know, can impeachment actually help the president? Because that was the experience that you had when you were working for Bill Clinton. The impeachment was overwhelmingly partisan. I think there were like maybe four Democrats that voted four for or five, in the House. And of course, none voted to convict in the Senate. And Clinton left with higher approval ratings after he was acquitted in the impeachment trial than before. And so then the fear among Democrats would be, and certainly I would think Pelosi is, you impeach Trump and he gets... Acquitted in the Senate. He claims exoneration and um, he comes out stronger politically.
2: There are some lessons that apply from 1998 and a whole bunch that don't. But one of the things is that if you pursue the right strategy, there are advantages to being accused and being acquitted. And when I say the right strategy, it was the strategy President Clinton employed, which was to not talk about this, to every time one of you guys no. said what do you think about that he'd talk about health care or he'd say i'm just doing the people's business now trump is trump, not pursuing the exact opposite He's strategy exact opposite.
0: he can trump, talk about nothing else yeah trump right. is
2: pursuing the victim strategy and trust me when i tell you there were moments internally in private where the president clinton indulged in the victim strategy because he did feel victimized and in some cases was some cases it was legitimate what they were doing some cases and that's that's old news so there is some parallel. There's also some a, a real parallel to 1973, 1974, and this is where the people who are, you know, are for impeachment have a strong case, which is the public needs to be brought along, and the Watergate, the Select Committee in the Senate, did the work for the House impeachment committee. The public was brought along, but with two important caveats. One is. It's actually the judiciary, the third branch of government, that broke open impeachment. It was forcing those tapes to be released. The second is we don't live in the same world that we lived in in 1973. In 1973, that summer, the hearings were on TV every day. Yeah. There were only three or four channels. You, you know, On many days, the first five days of the hearings, there was nothing else you could watch. PBS covered it gavel-to-gavel. Gavel. The networks covered it. So it gripped the country. You don't have that anymore. Right now you've got a country where very few people watch the network news at night. You have cable stations for whatever your preference is. You've got Fox News acting like Hillary Clinton is still pre- is president and should, is the one who should be locked up. You've got social media. And you've, you've got ultimately the one thing which is as soon as something on TV gets boring, you've got Netflix. Mm-hmm. And you can have, watch anything, anytime, anywhere. We can never recreate the environment okay, of Okay, it, it
1: is true that the, the media landscape has changed, fragmentation, all the things that you just mentioned. But it's also the case, if you compare the Watergate committees to what's going on now is that during Watergate, those committees actually produced. They put on lots of witnesses. These
0: committees have not put well, on fact well, witnesses. That, I mean, look, just this week, while you have this public show with John Dean, you know, a figure from Watergate right. talking about the Saturday Night Massacre and you know, the two MSNBC legal pundits reprising their soundbites uh, for the public hearing, offering no new information, none of them were fact witnesses. You had something similar before House Intel. A couple days later, Schiff has two ex-FBI guys, uh, people, uh, one was a woman, um, who weren't there in 2016 talking about the counterintelligence implications. So the public learned nothing. Those hearings got very little attention, certainly on TV. And we learned that a fact witness, Hope Hicks, is going to be testifying next week behind closed doors before House Judiciary. You know, somebody who was actually there during the time uh, that the Trump was trying to basically shape the public uh, understanding of what took place in um, uh, the Trump Tower meeting. Hope Hicks can speak to that. She's going to do it behind closed doors. And then Donald Trump Jr. But, the same day before Senate Intel, again, yeah, behind closed but doors. I want to
1: bring, bring Katie into this because yeah. just uh, going off on the point you made about that third branch of government, which was key the judiciary. I mean, the Democrats have been trying to get their star witness, Don McGahn, for example, who could be a very powerful and dramatic witness, given the role he played in the obstruction allegations. But Donald Trump is exerting executive privilege. He's telling all of them not to cooperate. And so now it's in the courts. So where does that stand, and are the Democrats going to be able to prevail and in time so that they can actually get them in front of you know one of their committees?
4: Yeah, I think in time is the key there. But just going back briefly to what we saw this week, I think an apt description is we got a primetime drama this week. We got characters that were cast. We got a scripted showing of what was happening, and what we need is the reality TV series, right? We need the cast of characters that were actually involved. We need them to come and tell us what happened, and right now we're just getting the primetime time drama that they're preparing for us. We're getting the Netflix version. But whether or not they get those characters, to your point, will be up to the courts because the the president has exerted executive privilege and the president is not shy to go to court, right? This is a president that has had over 3,500 personal lawsuits in his lifetime, which is certainly more than the last few presidents, maybe more than all of the presidents combined, maybe excluding, you know, President Taft, who was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and dealt with a lot. So he's going to go to the here and the executive privilege fight hasn't made its way up yet it will but it's gonna take some time how is
0: it likely to play out well I think who has the strongest legal stronger legal argument here the house or the White House
4: that's a good question. I think Congress has the strongest the <laughs> legal argument based on the very few precedents that we have. And right now, we're looking at U.S. v. Nixon, and we're looking at a couple of cases in the federal circuit courts that have dealt with congressional subpoenas. The courts don't deal with this issue a lot because it is such a given that Congress has this inherent authority to investigate and engage its oversight abilities. Well, that's written in the
1: Constitution. It's but not, it is,
4: it's not. Yeah. But, it and is, and but there, the, the Supreme Court has clearly said that they have that ability because it is inherent and implied in their Article I legislative powers. But hasn't
0: the Supreme Court also put limits on congressional investigations? The Watkins case from 1957, which dealt with people being hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee and being asked all sorts of questions that the Supreme Court said, no, there's no legitimate legislative purpose here. This is harassment and Congress doesn't have understatement unrestricted ability to get whatever information it wants.
4: Yeah. So it's going to come down to how carefully and artfully Congress's lawyers articulate that very point, right, what their legislative purpose is here. And on the tax fight, for example, they're looking for tax returns way before President Trump took office. And so their legislative intent and the need to investigate him, that's a harder argument to make there because they're going way beyond their scope of oversight over the president and his job and him fulfilling his obligations in that. Job With the executive privilege fight, I think they'll be able to articulate the need to investigate what happened with the Russian interference, the whole part one of the Mueller report. And it's going to be up to the judges to see what happens. And, and President Trump thinks that it's his Supreme Court. He thinks he's got a 5-4 majority and he might be right there. But the one key swing vote here is going to be Roberts. Well, uh, well, Chief well. Justice Roberts is, is a fierce institutionalist and he has shown a little bit, even in the press, which he does not do his loyalty to that institutionalism and, and his belief that the court and the judges themselves are independent and so I think he would actually probably swing with the liberals in a case where Congress properly articulated their investigative oversight role and that being tied to the subpoenas even in an executive privilege case right. I think they'd win. by the
0: way one side note on the tax fight getting Trump's tax returns yeah. is as I read the law it's pretty explicit Congress can get it but it also says in closed session, yeah. in confidential, right. on a confidential basis. So everybody thinks Congress getting the tax returns and then we're going to see, unlock the mysteries of oh, Donald wow. Trump's finances. Yeah. Do you
4: think Congress keeps things quiet? Well, <laughs> really? won't
0: that be a, a central issue that gets argued? You know, do you intend to make these public? And if they... Suggest they are that undercuts their argument, sure, right? Because but if they the say law says
4: not, no. They're lying. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> if it if it goes to Congress, it's going out. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's any real argument. Well, to you're be made you're that you're,
0: that you're making the the, the White House's case there. Sure. saying, See, we can't give it because they intend to violate the law by making these confidential tax returns public. Yeah.
1: Do you guys think that uh, Bob Mueller is going to end up testifying, or was his preemptive strike? saying that he would only stick to what was in the, uh, the report, was that effective?
2: I, I think he was setting expectations for his testimony, and I think he will testify. I think he may ask for a subpoena so he can say, I'm, I'm only here under a valid subpoena. I think it'll, as long as we're doing side notes, I think Bob Mueller would like to make the point that a congressional subpoena means something. And then when mm-hmm. you get one, you should show up.
4: Oh, I think I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. I think if he gets yeah. one.
2: One of the interesting things about all of the executive privilege case, more of the executive privilege than the tax case, is one of the tensions among the Democrats is you know there's this public strategy and the private strategy. I think the lawyers are trying to do everything they can to make the best case they can when they get a court because I think that's the only place that really matters. That is running head on into – a bunch of members who love being on cable TV and getting into the pay... So you think that's
1: why, for example, Hope
2: Hicks... That's that's where I'm going. You're wondering, why is Hope Hicks going to be in private? I don't know this, but my theory is what they want to do is they want her to come in, they want her to say whatever she's going to say, but they want that White House lawyer sitting there to object, to object over and over and over again, because then they can go into court and say, look, behind closed doors, no cameras, no press... We are trying to do this investigation, and they are clearly impeding this by misusing executive privilege. So again, I think Nancy Pelosi is directing a team of lawyers trying to make this case to win in the courts, then win in the political arena. So they show that. So the yeah.
1: Democrats show good faith. Yes, that they're trying to do this in the proper way. Give them every opportunity. Yeah. Have the White House object to everything, yes. then they're on a so star footing. In. When and they have does, to show good faith. So
0: when yeah. does this get to the courts, though? Assuming she testifies next week exactly as Joe just outlined. Well, this could actually fast-track um, and This could make it easier.
2: Well, that, well the big question I think uh, that you can't answer but everyone has an opinion on is whether the courts and, – and Katie – I'll pose the question or frame the question, and Katie can answer it at least from a legal point of view – is – Will the courts view a formal impeachment process with more urgency, urgency than just what the Democrats are doing now, a fact-gathering? There is a theory out there that right. the courts... It's, it's its almost like a game of both sides wants the, wants the other one to go first. And I think that if the courts show some reluctance to do this absent an impeachment process, that's going to be the turning point. That's going to be the where Pelosi will say... Well, reluctantly, we have to do this because the truth has to get out and the courts need this for urgency and and to be expeditious. So, you know, Trump isn't four years out of his presidency before this is resolved.
4: So a couple of points. The reason why they have a stronger argument when there are impeachment proceedings is that there's a case out of the D.C. Circuit. I'm not remembering the name right now, but there's a case that says once there are formal official impeachment proceedings, then their powers are magnified, so to speak, and their ability to investigate is magnified and the justice department has in fact cited that opinion in court filings related to this whole debate. But there was a which vote which was
2: otherwise known as the taunting memo. Yeah. <laughs>
4: there was there was a vote this week that opens the door wide open to when this is going to happen, right? The House voted and said they basically empowered every individual committee chair to go to a court and say, you're not complying with our subpoena, please hold them in contempt of court. Mm-hmm. Now, if Congress holds you in contempt, that gets Referred to the Department of Justice that gets referred to the U.S. District Court. I mean, the U.S. attorney for D.C., which is Jesse Liu. She's not going to bring a contempt proceeding against her boss. But what this vote did is allowed a judge to get involved. And if a judge holds you in contempt and even still it gets referred to the Department of Justice and they decline to prosecute or to pursue a contempt hearing then he can appoint a special prosecutor that allows them to do that. And the House made a key vote this week that lets every individual committee chair do that. They can walk into court now and say, you're not complying with my subpoena. Do they
0: do it case by case, individual by individual, or do they try to lump it together to try to put the power of all these subpoenas that are not being fulfilled together.
4: That would certainly be a legal strategy choice up to yeah. their, their lawyers, but I would pick an individual case, and I would probably go with Don McGann. And you pick an individual fight, your strongest case, your strongest argument, and you go to the court and you say, these are our very important congressional oversight reasons mm-hmm. why we need this information uh, leading up to a new election in and preparing and, and knowing everything we need to know for the 2016 election. And He's not complying with our subpoena. So please hold him in contempt.
0: Okay, so just play this out. Assume the House Democrats get a good judge for them uh, who rules in their favor. What's the timeline on that? It will certainly be appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, something you're an authority on. You know, what's the when does it get to the Supreme Court? which will presumably ultimately decide this matter?
4: It could go very quickly. A lot of people are of the opinion that courts will slow things down, that it'll get bogged down, that it'll take forever, and then Trump will be out of office. I'm not necessarily of that mind, and the proof is in the pudding with the the Mazers case right now That's that was appealed mm-hmm. to the D.C. Circuit uh, because that's, that's the Trump's accounting, accounting firm. firm. Right. And that went through the district court fairly quickly, and it got appealed to the D.C. Circuit and within... Forty-eight hours, I believe, they granted an expedited appeal, and they are now on a shortened timeline for briefing. That all is going to be wrapped up before mid-July. Right, and can I they bet a decision after that, or they can. You yeah. can appeal on bong, but you can also appeal directly, directly to the Supreme yeah. Court after that. I suspect they'll go on bong first, but we'll yeah. see. But that happened quickly, and all of that can bubble up over the summer before the Supreme Court sits again. Now, the Supreme Court would need to grant cert and go through briefing, but they also can choose when to put it on their calendar. So, technically, it's possible for the Supreme Court to hear one of these cases or these issues before the year's out
0: before the year is out. Yeah. And rule before the year is out?
4: If they want to, of course. Yeah. But I don't know that they work that quickly. <laughs> but I th- it's possible. And it depends on Chief Justice Roberts and how he views the import of whatever particular question it is that, that's coming up. And knowing that the following calendar year, once we turn over, it's then an election so year. So we
0: have a big one that we're waiting for now on the census. Yeah. Right. And the census question about citizenship. The Supreme Court is about
4: to rule on that, presumably in the Maybe, next... Maybe, actually. Maybe? Yeah. So there was some big news that came out. The ACLU actually asked Chief Justice Roberts to send the case back down to the district court because some new information came out. This guy named Thomas Hoffeller... Right. Um, this is the information that
1: was found in 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 his state. It, so,
4: so he died. <laughs> right His daughter found these old computer hard drives, I believe, or, or thumb drives of a study that he did in 2015 basically saying that if Republicans add this question to the census, that they can further gerrymander districts, and they can keep Democrats at bay. And this was done in 2015, which doesn't match with Ross's timeline and with anybody else in the administration's timeline about why they added the question. The problem is the Supreme Court can't consider that because they can't, they can't go consider outside new the records, right. right?
1: But they could send it back to the trial court.
4: Yes. So the ACLU made a filing yesterday asking to send it back to the trial court so they can add this to the court record, and I think. The Supreme Court loves to punt when they don't have to decide something, and then Chief Justice Roberts in particular probably doesn't want to take this up, especially given the new information. And why decide it now if you don't have to? I think Does they're the f- going to punt it.
1: Does the full court have to vote on that or on, on the question of sending it back? Or, did, or?
4: Oh, that's a good question. I think that's right. I think... I think they have to decide to send it back down and agree that it was uh, cert improvidently granted. But that's a good question. I right, so at we'll the same time, at, the, at the same time,
0: we have the House voting to hold Attorney General Barr and Secretary Ross in contempt for failing to turn over documents relating to the citizenship question. Mm-hmm. So does the that... The House
4: didn't. Just a committee did. The House Oversight Committee House did. The Oversight House committee. did not vote okay, on that. Okay.
0: So, but presumably the full House will. Well, no? it's the
4: same recommendation that was made by Judiciary last right. month, right? Where they recommended holding him in contempt. But then afterward, they were able to negotiate some additional documents. The same thing is what just happened. So we'll see if there's further negotiations. Can't the
0: ACLU and the plaintiffs in that case get these documents through the court process rather than the House having to try to slug it out on executive privilege potentially
4: but again they will assert executive privilege for the same reasons right the reason they're asserting executive privilege or at least the purported reason they're asserting executive privilege is because that information is protected based on his conversations with his advisors and that can't be given in any court or in response to a congressional subpoena so I i think they'll make the same arguments in that case but they'll try
0: all right. So your your bottom line prediction on this case is the Supreme Court's going to punt.
4: Oh, I think they're going to punt. I think Ch- okay. Chief Justice Roberts will love the fact that the ACLU just asked him to bring it back down to the lower court. Okay. All
1: right. Well, we got to let you find people go. But I want to ask uh, Joe one last question because I was intrigued. Uh, by a recent tweet of yours about Donald Trump's decision to sort of take over Fourth of July festivities yeah. uh, in Washington, which um, there have been a lot of things that he's done that that uh, have uh, mustered outrage in you, but um, this one sort of more than than others. And in fact, you tweeted, I'm pissed yeah. about this. So talk about that. And then I, I'm particularly interested in a couple of things that you've suggested that how uh, people ought to kind of deal with this.
2: Yeah, it's it's, we 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 talked about this on on our own podcast I think last week, Um, and it just I've come to expect some of the outrage, but every once in a while one of them sort of breaks through. And the Fourth of July is a holiday for all Americans. It is about independence. It is and it's it was built on this idea that we were breaking free from the yoke of the British monarchy, and people who had different ideas about things could live together uh, in this country and uh you know be independent uh, of of uh, the British monarchy and for Donald Trump to take what has been a tradition in Washington for—I mean, I—I I came to Washington in 1978. I can't say the last few years I've been going to the mall. Well, I grew up I, in DC, I, but I can grew tell up you the, f- going to the mall on Fourth of I 4th can tell July. you, the first ten years I was in DC, I went to the mall. It was a great day. It was a great time. I'm not sure I remember all of it because it was a—it was a fun time, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is a like it, it it is a holiday that all Americans celebrate and tend to put politics aside. And Trump is trying to turn this into a MAGA rally and trying to make like everything else he does about him. And there's just something incredibly offensive about it i 'm still trying to come up with uh, good ideas for protest. I was reminded recently that Nixon tried to do the same thing in nineteen seventy and uh opponents of Nixon apparently uh smoked enough pot to give a bunch of uh conservative women contact ties that like they 'd never heard uh never felt before in their life. so maybe there was something good that came out of that but uh, this I think the single best idea i've i i 've come up with is you know just producing 100,000 John McCain hats and 100,000 John McCain masks and 100,000 John McCain t-shirts that all say, I love America and I love John McCain, I can't imagine anything that would make the president more crazy than that. Uh, but listen, you know, if, if your listeners have better ideas, I'm in. I'm in because it's just well,
1: wrong. I, I mean, I think we know that would be effective given how people in the right. White House reacted when... Uh, when those naval ships, uh, when, the, when the John McCain uh, showed up in uh, and, uh, and the White House, uh, tried to take efforts to take down the McCain uh, signage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. OK, well, skullduggery <laughs> listeners, you've been challenged uh, by Mr. Lockhart here yeah. to come up with uh, b- uh, suggestions about how to uh, respond to Donald Trump's uh, Fourth of July plans. Uh, Joe and Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us.
1: Great to see you guys. Thanks to Tommy Vitor of Pod Save the World and Joe Lockhart and Katie Barlow from the podcast Words Matter for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod, And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.